welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. I could not be more thrilled or privileged to have joined our conversation today, Liz Broderick. Liz, thank you so much. Thanks, Melissa. It's wonderful to be here with everyone. This series is titled No More Secrets, Extraordinary Leaders Share Their Journey from Good to Great. And before we jump into that, I'm going to touch on your bio um, so that you almost need no introduction, Liz, but I'm going to roll with a few things anyway for people that haven't come across you before. So Liz was Australia's longest standing sex discrimination commissioner from 2007 to 2015. And one of her major achievements was the development and implementation of a gender equality blueprint um, for the nation. Um, and this was after a lengthy career as a lawyer, um, primarily at Ashurst through that time. In 2017, Liz was appointed by the United Nations in Geneva as a special rapporteur and independent expert of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. Liz is the founder and convener of the Champions of Change Coalition, formerly the Male Champions of Change, which is a globally recognised disruptive strategy for achieving gender equality. And Liz is a board member of the International Service for Human Rights, a member of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership Advisory Council, King's College in London, and in 2016 was awarded the Officer of the Order of Australia and also named New South Wales Australian of the Year. Liz, I've pulled out what I considered a few highlights. There's so, so much more. <laughs> can, I, um, can I ask, and hopefully I did, um, did okay with some of the wording on the way through, but can I ask for people in the audience who haven't come across you before, um, tell us who you are as a human being and let's jump right into your journey. Thanks, Melissa. And I think who we are as a human being, that's the most important thing. So I'm, I'm a mother, um, I'm a daughter, I'm a, you know, I've got a beautiful partner of 35 years. Um, and but I've also got an identical twin sister. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that anyone can have in life. Someone who knows you so intimately, who I've spent so much time with. Um, so, yeah, we grew up in, uh, a, a, you know, I'd say kind of a middle class family. My mother and father were both highly educated. My father was a physician. My mother was a physiotherapist. Um, and, you know, we we're a really tight family. I've got another sister as well, a younger sister. So there was the five of us together and the dog. Um, and I wouldn't have necessarily described it as a feminist family. My mum, was she in, a, in her own right? She was quite an activist, but she wouldn't have seen herself as a feminist activist necessarily. But the way the household ra ran was that, you know, there was a really um, good division of unpaid work. My mum and dad were equally, you know, likely to make the dinner, do whatever it was. And we were all expected to muck in as well. And indeed, right from early on, my mum and dad ran a series of medical practices. My, my father had brought the um, discipline of nuclear medicine to Australia, which was really a diagnostic imaging technology. And this was in the kind of 70s and 80s. So it was quite progressive. Um, and so we grew up in the surgery, our parents' surgeries. Um, they had a couple of surgeries, just mixing with people who are at really vulnerable stages um, of life's journey as well, potentially going to be diagnosed with, with illness or whatever. So it was a deeply human um, upbringing, I think. Mm, fantastic. And so did you always have, I mean, how did you end up heading into the law? Where did all this come from? It was interesting, was it? Because my twin sister and I, I mean, we, we went to separate schools right from day one, which when I think about it, 
that was a genius act, particularly by my, my mother. I mean, she didn't want everyone to talk about the twins or what are the twins doing now and if a twin's got the same clothes and everything. We never had an article of clothing that was the same. And I think, um, you know, when we established our own identities, because right from kindergarten, we were at different schools. My mum would drive my twin sister in that direction. My dad would drive me in this direction. I still remember the first day of school, you know, um, and I remember being in the car with dad and I got to school and the kindergartens didn't start to the next day. Well, I cried all the way home and not surprisingly, Janie had had the same experience. So she cried all the way home and we had our lunch boxes in the backyard. I still remember that. But um, it was beautiful because we were able to swap schools as we were growing up as well. So I'd dress up in her uniform and go as Jane for the day and she'd dress up in mine and, mm. and go as me for the day. So we had some funny times, including the fact when she um, we, was year nine and we decided to swap schools. And I forgot to tell her that it was the day of a big year nine science exam. Um, which I have to say I was pretty happy about because I came second in the class thanks to Jane's efforts. So we had some fun, fun times together as well. But when we um, were coming up to the final um, stages of senior school, of high school, we were both thinking about, you know, what it is that we would do. And I think you know, we decided we were both quite interested in health. I suppose we came from quite a health family, you know, dad, a doctor, mum, a physio, but also I was quite interested in, um, in law. And just um, it was at a time when we're starting to see the early incarnations of a women's rights movements, um, kind of late, you know, mid 70s, um, or actually late 70s, early 80s. Um, and yeah, I probably came down to, because we we're both interested in law, both interested in health, and we'd flick a coin and one would do one and one would do the other. So it was probably about as scientific as that, and that, that's where we ended up. I, I went in and did a computer science with my law degree. It was the first time that the University of New South Wales had ever offered that as a combined degree, um, and my twin sister went and did physiotherapy. Fantastic. So what was it like, if I get straight into covering that sort of legal career briefly, what was it like being a lawyer at that point in time? Sort of because you were there for sort of 19, 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was in legal practice for about 20 years. When I say legal practice, I was only in legal practice for about three or four years. And at that point, I looked ahead and I thought, you know, I, I saw what, you know, partners in law firms were doing, very good partners as well. And I asked myself a couple of questions. One was, is the law the vocation for me? Because I have to say, Melissa, I wasn't very good at it, I don't think. Um, you know, to be a really exceptional black letter lawyer, you need strong attention to detail, very logical thought. And that just wasn't me. Um, so early on, I think, um, I decided to move away from law in a sense, black letter law, and that was probably beneficial for Australian society generally. <laughs> um, but I still remember at that time, you know, a lot of friends and, and not so much my parents because they were pretty enlightened, but others said, but wait a tick, you know, you, you've studied law for five years, you've been a black letter lawyer for a few years, and now you're going to walk away from all that? 
But I think self-awareness is a really important tool. And I knew that, firstly, I wouldn't be able to have the career that I wanted to do um, or have. And not only that, I wouldn't be very good. So, yes, I did. I stepped out of mainstream law and I started to work at the intersection of technology and law. So this was then um, probably the early 90s or late 80s, actually. And um, technology, many computers were just starting to come into offices And for the first time ever, there was a potential that people could get legal advice, not just from a life lawyer, but also from some kind of rules-based system. And that was the development work that I started to pioneer in the late 80s. And I heard an interview um, that you did recently that came out on International Women's Day, and it talked about um, reflecting, I think, on your career at Ashurst, and you were reflecting on... um, you know, rewriting a lot of the rules where your kids spent a lot of time in there. You effectively had a team with a whole heap of people with young kids and a lot of them spent a lot of time in the in the office. That would have been pretty unusual, I imagine. It was pretty unusual because that would be the kind of early 90s. So flexible work wasn't a thing. No, we didn't. We still talked about part-time and it was so very rare. Um, but it, it was interesting because I, at that point, headed a group probably of about eight eight lawyers. Um, And I still remember we had a day that started like any other day. And one of my lawyers came to see me to tell me the happy news about her pregnancy. Fantastic. When will you take parental leave? And when the next one came that same afternoon, oh, terrific. When are you going to take parental leave? And when the third one came the next day, and what they didn't appreciate was that I was also pregnant, we had half of the um, legal team out, uh, you know, on parental leave at exactly the same time. And we're a really tightly knit group. We realised if this was going to fly, we had to reinvent the way we worked. Um, every one of us, because, and you know, I, I was in like my mid-30s. I didn't want to just drop my baby and race back in the same way that I'd, I'd been working before. I, You know, this was part of... Um, you know, changing the future. So I totally understood how each of my staff members felt as well. So we decided to reinvent the way we worked. And one of the first things we did on that reinvention path was to actually take on a new um, junior support staff, what we used to call in those days a junior secretary, the most incredible woman. Um, And I still remember I was brought a stack of CVs to go through and see who might be appropriate And I went halfway through the stack, I came to Michelle. Now, Michelle had been a secretary maybe for about three or four weeks, but she'd been a nanny for the previous six years. And we absolutely knew with those credentials, she was absolutely one for our team. So that really set up a way of um, both working and caring. And when I think back on it now, I think it's about a shift to a care mindset. So caring for each other caring for our employees and caring for self as well, which is a really important part of that picture. And um, I still remember the day I left Ashes, my kids were just devastated. But mom, this is like our family because, you know, they'd been in there um, quite a bit, always in a professional manner, even from when they were just such the littlest kids, six months old or whatever. And Actually, I still remember we had, I was having an interaction with one of a general counsel who was a big client of a firm. And what he didn't know, but I knew, was that we'd set up the matter room, which is the door next 
you know, the room next door, we'd set it up with all the baby's creches so that, you know, you could bring your baby in if you needed to be into work for half an hour and Michelle would help us out. So I still remember, you know, I'm taking down notes and whatever and he, he looks at me he says, oh, that's strange. He said, is that a baby's cry I can hear? <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so. This is a law firm. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, so we had some funny times, um, but we had such beautiful times and the lovely thing about that is every one of those women um, is still connected to the labour force and, you know, still develop, has gone on to develop incredible careers as well. So, Liz, um, I might skip all the way forward um, because I know we'll, we'll touch on your role as Sex Discrimination Commissioner um, as we go through and some of the many things you've done and also Champions of Change. But I would love to spend some time talking about what it is you're doing now um, and the really deep work that you're involved in now. So would you explain your role with the UN for us? Yeah. So I'm a, what they call a special rapporteur or an independent expert into the UN, into the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Um, and my role um, is uh, to do a number of things. I come together with four others. We are joined from, we are drawn from every region of the world. So I'm drawn from what they call WEOG, Western Europe and other group, but I have a global mandate. So the woman from Africa has a global mandate, woman from South America has a global mandate. So we all come together to protect and promote the rights of women and girls across the world. And that requires us to really do three things. One is to um, write every couple of days, we write to the heads of nation states about the human rights violations being perpetrated against women and girls in their country and ask them to investigate and report back. It's really part of an accountability mechanism for countries, particularly that have signed the International Women's Rights Convention. So that's one thing. The second thing we do is we undertake country visits on behalf of the United Nations. And I've just come back from Kyrgyzstan just um, this, this week or this last week. Um, where we went in to actually understand the status of women and girls and to make recommendations to that nation state on what, what actions they could take to promote, um, promote the status of women and girls. And we do that because, you know, when we lift women and girls, not only is that good for them, but it's good for families, it's good for the economy, it's good for social cohesion. Um, everyone benefits. So for most for most countries that really want to build, you know, prosperous and cohesive nations, um, this area of women's rights is important. But having said that, Melissa, this is a moment in time um, where with the geopolitical shifts that are occurring, with the increase of more and more authoritarian regimes, with the rise in religious fundamentalism, um, uh, what we're seeing is a real pushback on the rights of women and girls. They're being seen as progressive Western values rather than universal and indivisible human rights. Um, and that's also the case for LGBTIQ. I mean, in so many countries of the world today, if you're, you're part of the LGBTIQ community, um, not only uh, do you experience discrimination, but in many countries, arbitrary detention, stoning, even summary execution. Um, this is the world that we're inhabiting in this planetary moment. So our work is becoming even more and more important. 
Liz, what what along the way, um, what did you see that you couldn't unsee? You know, so much of the work you're doing is so sort of, you know, uh, I mean, just the purpose of it and those sorts of things, it's it's so important. What, what was that? There's so much that you can't unsee and it's hard to hold all the um, instances that you bear witness to in this moment um, on a day-to-day basis. It really is. And, and I started early on in my journey, even maybe when I was the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, um, to realise that um, if I didn't find a way to really reflect and kind of process, particularly the um, inequality that I bear witness to, the human suffering, then that would drag me on a path to a place where I'd be totally ineffective because there are, look, I I, I interview, you know, survivors of sexual assault, even in Kyrgyzstan, I interviewed many women who had experienced what they call bride kidnapping. Now, they'd been walking to school, really loving their learning, age 12, and all of a sudden a car pulls up beside them. They're dragged into the car and taken off to a family And if that young woman doesn't escape before nightfall, her own family won't take her back. Mm -hmm. So I met these women in crisis centres. And look, I meet women who've suffered and girls who've suffered, you know, forced and early marriage, gender-based violence, just being pulled out of school, Afghanistan at the minute, you're age 12, you have no potential for education, those types of things. So, and, and then they're the stories that stick. You actually find it very, very hard to move past. So I'm thinking of one in Kyrgyzstan where I went into a crisis centre and there was a beautiful young woman with two children. Um, When I went to speak to one of the young boys, he would have been 10 or 11, he couldn't speak. And that was a result of a psychological abuse that he'd suffered early in his life. And I still, his face still sits with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I suppose, you know, to keep being effective in our roles in this moment, Um, You need to, what I've learned to do is actually to harness that emotion and use it as my fuel in a positive way, not necessarily in an angry way, although sometimes I feel so deeply angry about the things that I bear witness to. I mean, honestly, some of them cannot be described as anything except evil, but more to hold it more gently and I use it to fuel my advocacy as well. So when I step forward as Liz Project to advocate for change and at the end of our country visits, we will give what we call preliminary findings. And at that point, we're speaking to senior ministers, government officials. We're talking about what's good and the promising practices, but we're also telling them, talking to them about the uncomfortable truths that are happening in their country in this moment. And so in those moments, I hold on to that emotion and I use it to build courage because in at the minute, um, you know, human rights defenders and people like me, we are at risk of reprisal. Um, mm-hmm. We're at risk of interrogation at, you know, a whole range of things, maybe not even being able to leave the country. So I hold on to that emotion and remind myself that, you know, I am powerful, I am influential, I will speak truth to power, and I will create change, because I'm fueled by the thousands of instances of human inequality that I've borne witness to over many decades. 
Liz, why you? I mean, you must ask that question sometimes. Yeah. You know, in those situations where, you know, there's genuine risk, why you? Yeah, um, why me? Sometimes I'm asking myself that question as well, Melissa. And, you know, actually I have asked myself that question because there are some moments um, and I'm thinking about moments where nation states, um, you know, pressure you um, in a variety of ways. But one is even the pressure coming from within the UN to withdraw from a visit, to withdraw from an event or whatever, where you're going to expose or shine light on human rights violations which are happening in the world today in particular countries. None of us want to see our dirty laundry aired. But if we shine sunlight on it and we name it, that's part of the steps to actually finding some solutions. So, yes, I've had a couple of instances where actually I've been fearful for my own safety, the safety of my family. Um, and I've found myself looking under the car and whatever for, you know, explosive devices or whatever. And in those moments, I have asked myself, well, um, you know, it, it, Am I happy to continue to do this work, particularly knowing what the risks are? And I just think for me, this, I don't even call it work. It's a vocation. It's a way of walking in the world and being. Um, I, it, it's, work, uh, it, it's a vocation that feeds my soul mm. and it gives me such immense energy. And also there's a universe of need. And I, I think that when, you know, when we're looking at the later stages of our life and we're asking, have I been of service, we're going to ask, have I been faithful to the gifts that I was given in service of the needs that I've seen around me? And I'm hoping that I'll be able to answer that the question, you know, that, that question with a resounding yes, but it will take courage. It takes courage to step up into these roles. So into, into sort of leadership, and it's not necessarily a new conversation, but, you know, what's your perspective on whether leaders are born or made, Liz? Um, look, I think they're both, to be honest. There are some people who maybe are born with, um, a, you know, a, a greater level of skills that are necessary to lead um, in the world today. But for me, leading isn't necessarily about having a position. It's about a way of walking in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all learn that as well, um, particularly if we're prepared to um, trust in our hearts as much as our heads. I mean, I, I think that's what really, um, you know, makes a good leader, a connection between heart and head, um, the ability to sense as well what I call body wisdom I use it every day in the work that I do and I probably early on I mean I I, I would have had senses um, I had intuition but I wouldn't have been able to use the body wisdom in a way that I do today so I've learned those skills um, what is, what is as, a, as a leader as well when you say body wisdom, what does that mean? That, that means that um, being aware, aware of how I feel in any individual moment. So how I feel sitting in front of 50 government officials delivering, you know, uncomfortable truths. So, in uh, you know, in the past, I would have just been quite reactive. Now I know that I can sense things in my body. I can sense extreme fear. I can sense anxiety. I can sense as, you know, all those things. And I know I can come into a conversation from that position or I can just be aware of that, acknowledge it, but choose to come 
back into the conversation in a different way. So I use my body wisdom to tell me how I am in this moment. But um, instead of being reactive, I'm quite intentional and proactive in terms of how I'm coming into the conversation. So I won't come in with irritation necessarily. I'll come in with particular, the heart of my work is deep respect, mm -hmm. um, but always to be aware of that through the body wisdom. So I think that's stuff that you learn as you actually go along in your life. What an incredible skill. And I think also something incredible for the audience to reflect on in that sense around how intentional you can be in those moments that you need to and not not fall back on perhaps what you're experiencing. Yeah, because I'm just on that, Melissa, because I always, and it comes back to, I think it was Viktor Frankl or someone early on in my life when I was reading some of his works, I remember that he said between stimulus and response, there's a space. And it's in that space that we choose freedom and who we are. And I've always, um, you know, tried to open up that space and and really that's where the body wisdom comes in i think and attached to that of course is the mindfulness so i'm a meditator i have been for 10 years or so so i'm you know it, it gives you a heightened awareness of how you're feeling in any moment i'm going to circle around to self-care because i know it's a huge um focus of yours um and so we will touch on that can i ask while we're staying on that leadership sort of theme what would you call out in your extraordinary career as, you know, defining moments that shifted your own leadership from good to great? I suppose it's for others to judge whether it's even good, never mind going to great. But um, I think for me, the moments are the deep human connection. I mean, just one example of that. So you'll know that early on, well, probably about a decade ago now, I did a lot of work with the military. Yeah. Um, and that was a moment I had to step up because, you know, most of us know how to be in any given context you know, we learn or whatever. So, you know, how to be in the boardroom, in the office, in a media interview, on a sporting field, in a family. But I didn't know how to be in a war zone. I didn't know how to be in a submarine or in, you know, beyond the wire in, um, in Oregon province in Afghanistan. Um, and I suppose for me, it was just um, really kind of believing and, and later on, it became a deep knowing that who I am right now, that's enough. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be more strategic. I don't have to be smarter, more connected or anything. That whatever situation I find myself in, and indeed sitting at the base of a submarine on top of the missiles, I could still be effective in creating change, provided I brought it back to a human conversation. So that's, that's really what I've learned, that if we want to create change in the world, we need to connect deeply as a human being, and that's about shared vulnerability. That's about me um, being en engaging with you in a in a way that's human. So I don't have to know about your defense occupation, what you do with the missiles. I just connect as a human being. So I think that was a moment for me to really understand the importance of just being safe in whatever environment I found myself and, and that's really been important for me because I find myself in so many environments I just never imagined existed in the world um, yeah so that, that that was one thing and then the other thing is I've it's probably on the same extension the importance of heart and mind connection for leadership Mm -hmm. um, when I was also in the military we started to uh, we, we traveled all around and I met 
particularly women, but quite a few men as well, um, who'd never told their story before, but they were prepared to tell me. I mean, the gift of that was just such a great privilege in my life. And indeed, it was at that moment that the team and I decided it was important that we heard the stories because we were tabling um, reports for Australia in the parliament. But what was more important was that those who had power, power to create change in the system heard the stories, not just saw them on a spreadsheet, but actually felt the full impact of them. So that's when we brought women in from all over the world to sit down one-on-one -on -one with the different leaders of the Air Force, Navy, Army um, to share their story, to actually describe what it's like to be sexually assaulted by your instructor, you know, the very person you go to for advice, what it's like to have your career trashed because you were prepared to speak out. And I remember those sessions. They're the most defining sessions probably of my career early on. And I still, I still remember the beautiful mothers because we would say to the women, feel free to bring a support person. And I still remember this beautiful mother. She just looked at the chief and she said, you know, I gave you the person I love most in the world. Yes. And this is how you've treated her. And, and, you know, in those moments, you just want the floor to open up and you'll swallow you all up. Yes. We won't have to deal with the reality of what's happening on the ground. So I think for me, that's when I learned the power of shared humanity to transform even the most conservative organisations. Wow. So, um, you know, how do, I, how do I go from the extraordinary depth of some of those conversations, but across to, you know, what is still so challenging and so meaningful for so many female executives in this landscape you know, we've, we're still not seeing the traction of females through to senior executive roles um, globally. Mm. And, you know, I mean, you, you've had um, such an enormous impact on that with the creation of initially male champions of change. And um, obviously that name has changed over time. And Liz, I had the privilege in, in a series of my last conversations of interviewing David Thode, who I know was one of your original. Yeah. Champions of Change. And he said to me, um, uh, I said, so how did you get involved in that? And he said, well, if Liz asks, you don't say no. So <laughs> I remind him I saw him last night, actually. But yeah, yeah, um, it was such a beautiful that that strategy, because as, as you and I've been discussing, Melissa, I mean, in those moments where I'm sitting in really a dark place in terms of distress, wherever I am in the world, I draw on the strength and the sunlight that the Champions of Change strategy actually brings. Because when you put a whole lot of now both men and women, but we did start with men and that was absolutely intentional because it was about disrupting the system um, and recognising that men hold the levers of power and really gender equality is about the redistribution of power, whether that's in the family or indeed the nation. So if we want to redistribute it, we have to work with men. But um, we've kind of moved on to the extent that we've had some, we've got incredible female CEOs as part of that strategy now. But I, I absolutely committed to ensuring that there's still a space for men to be held equally accountable and responsible for change as there is for women, because gender equality is not a women's issue. It's a key economic social issue. Um, but you know, when you put all those different minds together, we've now got about 270 champions of change in 17 different groups. 
And the things they come up with are more brilliant than I could have ever imagined. I mean, some of them are done. It's some of, not the men, but so, or the, the, the members, but some of the strategies are done yes. for sure, but we learn from them. But there's some brilliant strategies as well, which, um, you know, I'm just loving being part of that. I mean, the whole shift that we've seen in sexual harassment a lot of the thinking was out of a Champions of Change coalition, of course, in conjunction with academics and unions and NGOs and whatever, but it's, it's such an exciting strategy to be part of. So I've heard you use the term um, gender asbestos, I think is what you say. So let's get straight into that. What is gender asbestos and um, why, why does it matter that this shift occurs? Yep, so gender asbestos is really um, the attitudes, the beliefs, the practices um, which are built into the walls, the floors, the ceilings of organisations. Indeed, it's often in the air that you breathe. Um, so as, as a woman or, um, you know, you as a person from an LGBTIQ community, a person with disability, you know, you can't quite touch where the discrimination is. You know it's there. Because, you know, people like you are not advancing to the same extent as the predominant culture, which is often white, Anglo or European men. Now, I, I say that with the greatest honouring of the contribution of men. And let's face it, our, a lot of our organisations are really strong today because it was you know, men who not only invented them, but built those organisations. But my point is that the talent pool has changed um, and that if we want to build organisations which are high performing, we need the inclusion of women, not just as a substandard partner, but as absolutely equal partners in leadership. And what we know from the research, of course, is those organisations which are more gender diverse at the senior levels and inclusive, they actually perform much better. So the gender asbestos, um, so it's built into the structures. The only, look, I always say like asbestos, it's a terminal illness um, and the only cure is courageous leadership. And where do we need courageous leadership? It's very much in um, creating cultures of inclusion and psychological safety because they're, they're, they are two um, areas that without them, you won't have an organisation um, where women can thrive equally with men. Because what I see in a lot of organisations I go into, Melissa, is, look, they were invented by men for men, still largely run to, by men today. And what we've done is we've poured in a few women and we've stirred. And mm. not surprisingly, those women have been spat out. Um, sometimes spat out in a deeply concerning way. Um, so what I say is that without the active and intentional inclusion of women, the system will unintentionally exclude them. And that's because the system's been invented by men for men and even today is largely run by men. So um, through this series, it's been interesting because there's some males that we're talking to through the series, some terrific leaders who've been very open and vulnerable and talked in some cases around, you know, unconscious bias and becoming aware of unconscious yeah. bias themselves and where it came from. And part of me thinks, you know, the conversations around things like gender deafness, so females not being heard in, in meetings and needing to be, you know, backed up by someone else, girls growing up with the good girl kind of um, uh, lens, um, so, you know, potentially being perceived as too soft, too, I'm sorry, too tough, too soft or whatever, um, 
a lot of research around often females won't put their hands up unless they're 12 out of 10 versus, you know, guys might put their hands up if they're 5 out of 10 or something like that. None of that is new. So I just would love your perspective on um, why, why does it still seem that there's people unaware of these biases or situations or what do you think people should do to make themselves aware because it is really the way we um we shape and influence boys and girls right from day one so they talk the research talks about a gender schema so from the minute you're born you're looking around okay what are men doing what are women doing boys and girls or people of all genders and then you work out in the world and who am I and based on the interactions you have your gender schema just kind of deepens and deepens and it is really important that we have a schema because it's a shorthand way of understanding the complexity of the world yeah. um, but it really incorporates all the gender stereotypes which I believe not only do gender stereotypes imprison women they definitely imprison men as well yeah um, so it's how do you break down stereotypes and part of that is, you know, just even in the media we consume, in the educational systems and whatever, if boys are always presented like this, girls are always presented like that, then, it, I, you know, it just takes our gender schema in a really problematic way and it, it, it deepens it and deepens it. And particularly for boys who, I mean, you know, a lot young children who are unsure about who they are, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and we've seen a lot of, um, you know, really human harm, deeply distressing uh, on the LGBTIQ community recently. So I think um, as parents, what can we do? The first thing I would say is we have to model respect in every interaction because what we model, our children or children in our care, they will take into their life. And if we're not modelling respect, we're not allowing them to build respectful relationships. I, I always say human rights starts within the family, but it, the educational system is really important, Melissa, and you'll see the work that Scandinavian nations and others have done. Um, even like one of the beautiful things I saw in Kyrgyzstan was that they were doing a review of the school curriculum. Um, now, they had a huge drop-off in the number of girls attending school after age 12, about a 50% drop-off then. Mm -hmm. um, but prior to that, they actually were reviewing all their textbooks, including all the images and whatever, to ensure that they weren't perpetrating negative gender stereotypes for either, you know, for, for children of all all genders so you know that I love identifying the promising practices and and that was fantastic but the education system and then of course um the media that we consume I mean even today the sexualization of women you know those types of things so send very subliminal messages about who we all are Liz, what do you say to, you know, um, a female executive in particular? Because um, often we hear from people in the audience who are in environments where they're struggling to sort of use their voice. Mm. What, what guidance could you potentially share with them? Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, my first guidance is because I, once again, saying human rights starts at home, is that if, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, I've used it through, through my career and my personal journey as well, if gender equality is my birthright, why would I accept anything less? So hello, I'm here at this table. It might be the top table. It might be a junior table. It doesn't really matter. But I'm at the table. I'm entitled to have a voice. 
and I will put that. I'll always put it respectfully and with dignity, but I am entitled to speak uh, because I think that that that's the first thing, actually know, believing and knowing that yourself. And then uh, if you're the, the tone deaf where everyone's speaking over you or you make a comment and then Jack makes a comment and John and John references back to Jack, even though he's made the same comment that you have, um, I think just the um, uh, co coalitions that you can make um, with others just to help them see what's happening, just to even try to experiment and just be deliberate and listening around the group. So I think suggesting some strategies like that, but at the end of the day also it's about those who facilitate conversations I say doing it according to a human rights approach. So equal share of voice, that's a very strong human rights principle. Um, the ability for me to participate in decisions that will affect me. Um, these are all basic, you know, be treated with dignity and respect. They're all basic human rights principles. And I think if meetings were run according to those principles, not only would women actually have an equal share of voice, um, but, you know, people of all different backgrounds and ethnicities and different identities would benefit from that. So I think we have to look at the facilitation as well. Let's move on to self-care because I know that's such a strong um, message from your perspective around I'll be well physically and mentally. Yeah. I mean, the human rights defenders taught me that. They taught me that being well, both physically and mentally is the ultimate act of empowerment. And in many countries today, it's the ultimate act of political defiance as well in this moment. How do you protect that for yourself? Yeah, it's a work in progress. I really admit that, Melissa. I mean, you know, I probably started on this journey about 15 years ago. Actually, it was beautiful. It was probably after I'd been up to the Kimberley with June Oscar, who's the Indigenous Commissioner, and I'd been up to one of her women's bush camps, which now when I reflect on it, it's an example of collective care. So about three or 400 women from all across the Kimberley came together in a bush camp to talk about issues which they cared about. And in that community at that time, it was very much about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the abuse of alcohol, mm -hmm. and what they could do as women to really um, hold their communities together during mm -hmm. that period. But it was also about nurturing each other. And that's what really took me probably more and more into um, some daily practices that I could also use. I mean, with June and others, it's a deep connection to lat to country. Um, and really understanding that. I loved it with June. I still remember the first time I went out on her country, which is called Bunaba country, we came to a, a, a small pond of water um, and June picked up a stone and she rubbed it under her arm and she threw it into this, this small lake. And she said, you know, I come here with the deepest respect for country in peace and whatever. And it was a way of announcing your arrival um, on country. And I just, some of those beautiful um, connections and practices that Indigenous Australians um, have and can teach us. There's so much to learn from our Indigenous sisters, I think. So I started to experiment with some of those things. I became a regular meditator, just got into it actually via Headspace or one of those apps. Um, and now I'm at a stage I don't meditate every day by any means unless I'm on country mission. So if I'm on mission, I will. But otherwise, I'm just using the tools that I 
have created to be more mindful and aware. I'm using them every day, you know, the breathing, the um, centering, all those things in the moment, in meetings, in discussions. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm using them more as a daily practice. And then on top of that, of course, being in nature, I mean, for me, that's very nurturing and regenerating. But I've now developed a self-care plan as well. Um, we have good psychological support across my teams just to help us process what we're bearing witness to. And I have mechanisms to check in to see how, how am I feeling? Uh, is my worldview getting out of whack? And then for me, is it, am I starting to believe that the world's a really unsafe place? Um, am I starting to believe that men are bad? Yeah. Um, because in my role, you could. And I just, continuing to come back and say no you know this you know the world's a beautiful place but I'm seeing a particular subsection of it or you know I've got so many incredible um, relationships with men starting with my beautiful partner of 35 years my son um, and the other thing Melissa is the beautiful men that I mentor I, I seriously don't think I could do this job without the involvement particularly of young men um, supporting me in, in my work as well because I think that nurturing feminine energy that men have as well as women um, helps me just recenter about how I see the world. So these are some of the techniques that I'm using. I love poetry and reading and all those things and deep connection to family and friends. But I think if you haven't prioritised self-care, then it's down the bottom of the list. And if you think about it, and this is what the Women's Human Rights Defenders taught me, that our movement will only ever be as strong as every one of us who makes it up. And if we're not physically and mentally well, then our movement will never be strong. So I'm going to prioritise self-care. And that's what I've, you know, with it's a work in progress. I haven't got it sorted by any means, but, um, but I think I've got it more sorted than I had. You reminded me instantly of um, one of the very first interviews I ever did was with Laura Berry, who's... Oh, yeah. I know, Laura, yeah. And um, just she shared a story about the, the whole sort of campfire and stories and connection and, you know, it was a real yearning for that sort of connection. It was just beautiful. So you took me instantly back. Oh, uh, beautiful. Yeah, Liz, I would love to ask, um, you know, I mean, gosh, if I could be selfish and have you for, you know, a day, I'd do that. But uh, but I know we can't do that. You've been so generous and it's such a hallmark of the incredible leaders that I've had the privilege of talking to who are all driving change, um, their incredible generosity. So I thank you for that. The final question I want to ask is, from your perspective, what does the term brave feminine leadership mean? And do you think it needs to change? For me, brave, brave feminine leadership, um, it's, it's about a way of walking in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe brave feminine leadership can be exhibited by, by people of all genders. It's not just a women's thing. What does it tell me? It tells me that you're harnessing your emotions instead of trying to, to silence them. 
Um, you know, so often we see leadership presented in a dis dispassionate way. For me, brave feminine leadership is about harnessing everything that I am, all my emotions and everything else and using it to create positive change in the world. So that's about vulnerability. It's about empathy. It's about um, fear. It's about courage, all those things. You know, when, when I lead and I lead with others, I'm not saying I'm leadership for me is not me being out in front or whatever. It's me being deeply connected at a human level to the goodness that sits under the brokenness, if I can put it like that, and working with others through an emotional as much as a physical connection to create positive change in the world. I think that's what brave feminine leadership is. And when the brave part of it, that's, I think, you become braver over time is my experience. I mean, courage is like a muscle. The more you use it, the easier it becomes. And I've just found that in my work. If I think about some of the situations I've had to navigate through in the last couple of years, I never would have been up for that 15 years ago. I would have been kind of in a little mess on the floor in fear about it. So as, I mean, Brene Brown and others say, look, courage is not, about no fear it's about having fear but being prepared to step in anyway and I think the more you do that the easier it becomes thank you for adding your voice to our conversation I'm so deeply appreciative of it um, and I know our audience will be too beautiful thanks so much Melissa and thanks for the work you're doing around this as well I love listening to the conversation so thanks so much for having me on <laughs>